the word of our Lord. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So reads the word of our great God. Let's pray. Well, Lord God, as we come to your word now, we ask that you would illuminate our eyes, that you would give us eyes to see that truly your word would be a lamp. It would be a guide unto our feet. That you would give us eyes to see and to behold the greatness of our Savior, the mercy and the compassion and the love and the grace extended to this man and extended to us. So we ask that you would bless us. In Christ's name. Amen. Well, there was a philosopher, a German pessimistic philosopher named Arthur Schopenhauer in the 19th century, and some of the things that he taught was that life was aimless and pointless. It was hopeless. He was an atheist. And one day he was sitting in hopelessness on the park bench, and he was all disheveled looking. He looked like a vagrant in a nice part of the city, sitting on this park bench. And a police officer came up and said to him, Who do you think you are sitting here? And to that, Schopenhauer replied, I would to God that I knew. You see, he interpreted the question as one of origin. I don't know who I am. I don't know if there is a God. I don't know if there is no God. I don't know where I've come from or where I'm going. I'm in despair 
and hopelessness. And that is where atheism leads. Despair and hopelessness. Another school of origins is the agnostic position, which could say, I don't know. Or it could say, I can't know. It's another position of despair that people often hold to. We just can't be true. We just, we just can't know anything. And thankfully, there are some agnostics who don't say, I can't know, but I don't know now, but I'm still searching for answers. And to that, the Christian can step in and say, great, that's good, because the Christian faith has answers. And as we look at a passage like this, we see the Lord Jesus Christ has an answer for those who are in despair, to those who are in a bad condition. And we saw in the preceding passage that Jesus Christ calmed a storm. We see that at the end of chapter 4. Jesus calms a great storm, a wild storm. And then here in this passage, we see Jesus tames a wild man. Jesus has power over the natural order. Jesus has power over the demonic realm. Jesus has power over our lives. And we see this region of the Decapolis. These are Decca is 10, Polis is city. So these 10 cities that are on the other side of the Jordan, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It is often called a wilderness and a, a wild part. So we see a wild storm, a wild man, and a wild region that Jesus is now going into to preach the gospel and to have this great encounter with this man on the seashore. Humanly speaking, the wild storm and the wild man are untamable, but to Jesus, nothing is untamable, and he subdues both of these. And so there's many ways that we could view this particular passage. If you are taking a picture of something, there's a different perspective and view that you could look at. And we could look at a comparative view. We could look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke and the different accounts that they have, the differences in the way that they explain things. We could go that route. But here this morning, I want to simply look at this man and his life in relation to Jesus and what he does and pick out some of the aspects that we see here. And verse 1 tells us that this took place in the country of the Gerasenes. We see that in verse 1. And the other accounts may call it the Gadarenes, or your version may call it the Gadarenes, the area of the Gergesenes, perhaps. And these are not a discrepancy. There's no contradiction that is, is occurring here in the Scripture. They're simply different names for the same region. So it all means the same things, these different regions along the seashore of the, Galil- of the Galilee. And if you were in Jesus' home city in Galilee, Capernaum, and you went across to the other side, approximately 10 kilometers, you would wind up in this region where this account takes place. And if you do a tour of Israel, as I have, they take you to this place and you can see the way the topography works out. You can see these limestone tombs in the hillside. You can see where the herd of pigs would have run down the hill into the Sea of Galilee. It's a very interesting area, but I don't want to get sidetracked by topography. But all of that to say, what is the condition of this man? We see this unfold for us in verses 2 through 5. We see a man here of an unclean spirit. That means he's demon-possessed, as the passage goes on to tell us in a couple of different places. Luke chapter 8 tells us that the man is naked, that he's, been, that he's from the city nearby, so he would be known in this particular re- region. He's running about like a crazy person, an unhinged person, 
He's broken these chains and shackles. No one can subdue him. This has been an ongoing problem in the region. So much so, people avoid it. If you are looking for directions and you're going south along the shore, people from the town are going to say, take the long way around. Don't go by this guy. He's just trouble. Take the long way around. And so the man is isolated in these tombs. He's among the dead in the tombs. And he has to be isolated because he's such a danger to himself and to others. He needs to be alone. He's harming himself. He's destroying himself. He's cutting himself. He's living in the tombs among the dead. And he really is dead while he is living. Destroying himself. And this really is a picture for us of those who are outside of Christ. We see in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are dead in trespasses and sins. We are hopeless. We are without God in this world. We're isolated. We're alienated from God. Alienated from man. Living in the tombs. Deadness. And we see this picture of humanity that's unfolded for us in the place of this man. Humanity without God. Obvious enslavement that he has to sin and to these demons. And as we read this story and we consider this man, you might think of people down on East Hastings. Some of those people that, that seem to walk around in a similar type of manner. But I want to say to us, as a reminder, that you can be just as spiritually dead sitting here as people are out on the street corners. We can push away God and the gospel. We can be spiritually dead and have a veneer of self-righteousness. We can come to church in the morning and we can look all proper and all right, but yet be spiritually dead. No less dead than any other person out on the streets. We can be enslaved to self-righteousness. We might not look anything like this man or anything like the people that we might look at out on the streets, but we can be just as dead. And so the second thing that I want to notice after that discouraging picture is the encouragement that we see, this deliverance that we see of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the life of this man. And we see that in verses 6 through 13. John chapter 10 tells us that Satan has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's what he does. He's a destroyer. That's his name. Destroyer. And that's what he does to people. That's what he's doing to this man. He is destroying him. And he will be destroyed without the intervention of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so he gives us something that this world and that Satan in spite of all that he offers, could never give us. In verse 2, told us that the man came out of the tombs to meet Jesus, and then it stepped back back in verses 3 to 5 and kind of unfolds for us a picture of what this man looked like. And then verse 7 again picks up and tells us that he saw Jesus from afar and he ran and he fell down before him. Up in the tombs, he probably had a view of of the beach or where people moored boats. And so he would be looking for people wanting to go torment more people. And so perhaps he saw Jesus come ashore and he rushes down. And as he's approaching Jesus, the demons within the man realize who they are encountering. That this is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And they fall down and they worship Him. They can't help but fall down and worship Him. And so the demons, though they hate everything about God and everything that God represents, they're still powerless in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has power over them, power to subdue them. And so then in verse 7, we see a remarkable declaration of who Jesus is. Jesus, Son of the Most High God. That is the declaration that comes from this man. That's coming from the demons. They recognize exactly who this is. And it's a declaration of deity. They know who Jesus is. That He is God incarnate. God in the flesh. And so the demons know orthodox theology. They know who God is. They don't have debates in hell, wondering about the existence of God, having different debates back and forth. They know God full well exists. They know the deity of Christ who is before them. They know that ultimately they are going to lose this battle and so they are working very, very hard in the interim before their end in the lake of fire. They know that they don't have total control over people, that Christ does, that He is sovereign over all things. And so we see them asking permission in verse 13. We see that Christ is sovereign over the demons. They ask permission. He grants the permission. And we see in verse 7, they say, I adjure you, I beg you, I implore you. And they want to be sent into these pigs. They know Jesus is common. They know what He is going to do. And so they ask that they are not tormented before the time. That was the reading that we read from Mark. Before the time. Before the time of their final ending. They know they're going to come to an end. And then Jesus asked them, what's your name? And they say, Legion, for we are many. Now a Roman, Roman legion of soldiers was around 6,000. So we don't necessarily take that to mean that there are 6,000 demons here. There are many. Maybe not 6,000. Maybe there's 2,000. Approximately 2,000 because that is the approximate number of the pigs that are, that are going to die here. Some commentators speculate on that, but we don't actually know. But we know that Jesus knows. And we know that he's going to cast out every single one of them out of this man. But our text says that the demons ask Jesus to be sent into the pigs and Jesus grants the permission and the unclean spirits come out and they enter the pigs. They enter this herd and the herd stampedes down into the water and they die, they drown. What does this mean? Well, it shows us Jesus' great ultimate power. And secondly, it shows us the value of a human soul. The way that God views it. The way that Jesus views the value of a human soul. It's worth more than 2,000 pigs. Now the herdsmen don't think so. We're going to get to those, them in a second. You know, Jesus has just taken a great sum of money from them. And they're going to be upset about that. But to Jesus, the price of a soul far exceeds the price of 2,000 pigs. But let's look at this demon-possessed man. Let's picture ourselves in his shoes for a minute. Enslaved. Totally enslaved to demon possession. Helpless and hopeless. Tormented continually for years. Remember, this is a continual problem that they have tried in the region to subdue. This man has been tormented for a long, long time. Twisted. Destroying himself. 
a menace to everyone and himself. And in an instant, the unclean spirits came out. Verse 13. The unclean spirits came out. Just like that. One word from Jesus and they are gone. And what a picture that is. The, the demons come out, they enter the pigs, they stampede away, they are gone. It is dead. They are dead. Can you imagine the picture for this man as he proceeds in his life? In times of temptation, how he would look back and see that stampeding herd and see his sin speeding away and thinking to himself, I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. I'm going to walk and I'm going to act as becomes a follower of Christ. What a picture of salvation it is. What a picture it is for us even. We've been delivered. We've been delivered. If we have this newness of life within us, the Spirit of God indwelling us, we too can have this picture of the stampeding herd away that Christ takes our sin as far as the east is from the, uh, from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. They're gone, removed, covered over by the blood of Christ. What a visual that is for this man. What a visual it is for us that we are free. We were once enslaved. We could do nothing but sin. But Christ delivers us. Christ intervenes. Our sins are gone, past, present, and future. Christ delivers fully. He delivers finally. We were enslaved, and then we got saved. This man was enslaved and he got saved. And so the next thing we want to notice is the, is the, the result in the hearts and the minds of the countrymen. What happened with them? How do they react? How did they react to this man that they knew growing up? The man who was demon-possessed for so many years. They probably knew his family. They probably thought, what a wonderful event this is that's occurred. Let's go. Let's go chat with him. Let's go talk to him. Let's go see what has happened in his life. But no, it's a wild response that they have. It's really crazy. You think that there would be admiration to Jesus for all that he has done. Wow, look at this amazing thing that Jesus has done on this man's behalf. Amazement from the people that this man was a menace. And now look at, look at him. He's clothed. He's in his right mind. We could have a coherent conversation with this man and ask him what Christ has done in his life. And maybe if Jesus could do something so exceptional in this man's life with the degradation of sin that he has experienced, maybe he could do something in my life Maybe he could do something with my sin. Maybe he could do something in my marriage. Maybe he could do something with my addictions to alcohol, drugs, and sex, my bitterness, my anger, my envy, my jealousy towards those who advance over me in the workplace, my fear over the future, my regrets over the past, my anger, my envy, my hatred, my emptiness, my hopelessness, my aimlessness, my despair. Remember the atheist and the agnostic? Hopelessness, despair. My heart is deceitful and desperately wicked and I think that this Jesus knows it. And moreover, I think that he could do something about it. 
he could do something in that man's life, he could do something in our lives too. Let's go talk to him. But they don't do that, do they? How do they respond? They say, Jesus, go away. Get out of here. We don't want anything to do with you. You've ruined our livelihood. All of the pigs are gone. We want status quo. We want things the way they were. Can you imagine wanting to choose, choose this, this lunatic as a neighbor rather than the Lord Jesus Christ? Drawing him near. Getting closer to him. But no, they say go away. They don't want anything to do with him. And maybe that is you here this morning. You don't want to submit to him either. You don't want to submit to his rule. Maybe you've gone so far with Christ, but you will not give him everything. There are still those cavities and areas of your life that you are holding back in and you will not relinquish. You're satisfied with going this far in Christianity, but no farther. You say, go away, Jesus. I'm going to go my own way. That's a bad place to be in. Just like these herdsmen, it's a bad place to be in to say to Jesus, go away. But that is a phrase that many people use inside the church and outside the church. Jesus, go away. I'm going to go my way. And here Sinclair Ferguson says, men often hold on to their bondage and evil rather than yielding to the pain of transformation by Christ's power and grace. Yielding to the pain of transformation by Christ's power and grace. And grace. Maybe that is you this morning, unyielding, not wanting to relinquish your sin, in love with your sin. That could be us holding on to evil, satisfied with a very low level view of Christianity, satisfied with coming here on a Sunday morning and then that's it for the week. And in so doing, though we wouldn't phrase it this way, we are telling Jesus to go away. And that might be very uncomfortable for us to verbalize it in that way. But in our attitudes and our actions, that's what we are saying. Jesus, go away. I want to go my way. I want to hold on to my sin. I want to continue on these paths that I'm going down. As destructive as they are. But there is another group. There is another group that wants to go Jesus' way. And we see that pictured in this man in verses 18 to 20. And we see that Jesus gives this man a mission. The man wanted to go with Jesus to follow him in the boat and we could plainly see why. What Jesus has done in his life is incredible. It's miraculous. The man will never be the same. And he wants to be near Jesus. He doesn't want to lose eyesight of Jesus. He wants to be everywhere that he goes. He wants that nearness and closeness. Closeness to Jesus. He has changed the trajectory of his life. Things will never be the same again. He was headed for death and destruction and Jesus delivered him. And so the man wants to go away with Jesus, but Jesus says, no, I want you to go a different way. I want you to go home. Go home. I've got a different task for you. You're not going to follow me. You're not going to be a part of of this uh, disciple group that I have as we go and teach You're needed somewhere else. You're needed in another place. I want you to go in the Decapolis. I want you to to tell everyone what I have done in your life and deliverance, the mercy that I've shown to you. 
I want you to share that with other people. That's the testimony that the Lord gave him. And you have a testimony as well. If God has delivered you from your sins, you have a testimony too. A testimony, simply telling people what God has done for you, how he's shown mercy to you, that you at one time were separated from God in your sins, but God intervened. It doesn't have to be the diatribe of a thesis or a theologian or a pastor. It can be very, very simple. You recall the account in, in, of the blind man in John chapter 9 where Jesus heals the blind man. And the blind man is then hauled before the religious leaders. They are saying, hey, we want you to renounce this story of what Jesus has done in giving you this eyesight. We want you to change the story. You're creating a, a furor here. You're creating problems for us. We want you to recant this outrageous story. And what does the man say in verse 25? He says, listen, I don't know all this stuff that you're talking about, but one thing I do know, once I was blind, but now I see. It was reduced to a very simple approach that this is what Jesus has done in my life. That was the testimony the blind man had. That is the testimony that we have. Very, very simple. Once we were blind, but now we see. The Lord gives us this testimony. And our text ends with those, those words that everyone marveled. That he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. So again, the Decapolis, this region on the other side of the Jordan, the other side of the Sea of Galilee, this region of ten cities. Um, this region would have taken a long time for him to cover on foot. And so he was at this for a while, preaching what Christ had done. And what was the result of his preaching? Everyone marveled. They were astounded at what Christ had done in the man's life. Everyone marveled. It's a great testimony of the power of the gospel. It's a testimony that atheism and agnosticism can't provide. They're dumbfounded by a changed life by a transformed life. They have no answer for that. Henry or Harry Ironside was the pastor of Moody Bible Church about 100 years ago in Chicago. He was born in Toronto, made his way down to Moody Bible Church, pastoring there. And one night he gave his testimony. And afterwards, a man came up to him and challenged him to a debate. And so... Harry Ironside got the attention of the congregation and, and announced that this man has, has uh, challenged me to this debate and the topic is agnosticism versus Christianity. And so he said, I will meet the demands of this man. Next week we will have this debate on two conditions. And so he said, first, he must promise to bring with him one man who for years is what we would commonly call a down-and-outer. And he says, I'm not particular as to the exact nature of the sins that have wrecked the man's life or made him an outcast from society, whether he's a drunkard or a criminal of some kind or a victim of se sexual immorality, but a man who for years was under the power of evil, evil habits from which he could not deliver himself, but who on some occasion entered one of this man's meetings and heard his glorification of agnosticism 
and his denunciation of the Bible and Christianity, and whose heart and mind as he listened to such an address were so deeply stirred that he went away from that meeting saying, henceforth I too am an agnostic. And as a result of imbibing that particular philosophy, found that a new power had risen in his life. The sins that he once loved, he now hates. And righteousness and goodness are now the ideals of his life. He is now an entirely new man, a credit to himself and an asset to society, all because he is an agnostic. And then he said, condition number two, I want you to find me a woman of similar character, immoral, godless. And this woman also is to enter the hall where this man was loudly proclaiming his agnosticism and ridiculing the message of the Holy Scriptures. And as she listened, hope was born in her heart and she said, this is just what I need to deliver me from the slavery of sin. As a result, she is living a clean, virtuous, happy life, all because she is now an agnostic. Those were the two conditions. And he said that if you will promise to bring those two people with you to the meeting next week, I will meet with you there. And along with me, I'm going to bring hundreds of people who've been transformed from exactly this type of life. And they're going to stand with me up on the stage and testify as to the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the veracity of the Holy Scriptures. And with that, the man who had challenged him kind of gave a meek wave and put his head down and left that assembly. That was the end. He had no answer for a transformed life. Atheism has no answer for transformation. Agnosticism is not a path of transformation. The gospel submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ is the path of transformation. We see that pictured here. And maybe you've been telling God your whole life to go away. Maybe you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. Or maybe you are a Christian, but you are pushing God away. You are saying this far and no farther. You are happy with a low-level commitment in your Christian faith. And maybe you are not marginalized, pushing a shopping cart around, but you might be just as dead as some of those folks who are. And so what is the answer? The answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. The answer is to say to yourself, if Jesus can transform that man's life, then maybe, just maybe, he can transform mine too. If I would just come to him. Because if I would have been able to transform my life on my own, I would have by now. Isn't that true? If we could transform ourselves, we would. We wouldn't be here. But we can't. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. We need the hope that he provides. We need to admit that we are helpless. We are hopeless without him. And to those folks, Jesus doesn't say, go away. He says, come, come, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For all those who would but come, there is transformation. Jesus promises a life of transformation. Let's pray. 
Oh, Lord God, we come to you. We thank you for the lessons we can learn in the life of this man. And wherever we are pictured in this account, whether we are dead in our trespasses, whether we are telling you to go away in certain areas of our lives, Lord, I pray that we all would submit, that we would truly walk in newness of life, that we would allow your word and your promises to wash over us and to cleanse us in such a way that we are changed, that we are transformed, and other Others would look at us and marvel at what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.